as we've talked through First John, um, I've been learning a lot about the letter. I'm, I, I don't pretend to know everything about it. I don't understand everything about it. Um, but I've learned a lot in studying through it. And chapter five presents um, some things in here that are kind of perplexing to me, especially on first glance and on second glance and even third glance. It's still difficult to understand. But hopefully what I've been able to work through, at least some of it, will help you understand some of it or at least give you tools to maybe think about it. Um, and that's really the hope. We study God's word not because we anticipate understanding everything God has to say to us. He did his best. He's, he's working through flawed tools like John, like you and me. Um, and certainly he has a long way to come down to help us to understand his will for us. And so we're not always able to do that. But our pursuit in reading the Bible and trying to understand it is that we're trying our best. God's done almost all the work for us, and we can do a little bit in trying to understand what he wants for us and what he wants us to do. And so First John's no different. And when we get to chapter 5, some of the themes that we've seen through the book already that John uses to highlight truths of God are, are light and darkness, right? He uses those contrasts. If you're of God and you're following God, then that's like you're in the light, which for a Jewish person, a Hebrew person is everything, right? To be in the light is everything. And to be in the dark following the world is the opposite of what you want, right? And so John paints in those very stark contrasts. He also talks a lot about, uh, for instance, in chapter, uh, well, two, about the world, Right, He uses a lot of language that involves like worldliness and being of the world. And the world won't know you right? because you're not of the world. Um, in fact, as you push on through chapter 3 and on, you'll know that John talks a lot about love. right? And he talks about love in ways that I wouldn't talk about love. It's not how I think. But he talks about love as being even a diagnostic to like just like you know one plus one is two. right? You can know if someone's a follower of Jesus by the love they have, right? And he talks about that in chapters 3 and 4, but he also uses uh, some other specific things. Uh, even though these are some of the themes he, he uses to talk about them, he does highlight specific things like, one, knowing that Jesus was real. That's a big theme of John, right? Like Jesus came and we know and we saw him and we touched and we heard, right? And he's not... Uh, or rather, as chapter 5 is going to present him, um, and we even talked about this in chapter 4, is that Jesus had a body, and he had blood, and he was the one sent by God. right? And you can test the spirits. You can know what is true and what is false, and the types of messages that you should pursue or ignore. And so while John uses a lot of like themes, a lot of imagery, and even themes and imagery that I wouldn't think are super concrete, he uses them to instill very concrete values of being a believer in Jesus. And chapter 5 is no different. So uh, if you want, we'll read the first four verses again. So follow along with me here as we read these four verses. And as we go throughout chapter 5, I'll have some kind of thought questions for us that are maybe more application-oriented. Uh, but let's read these first four verses together. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. 
For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes uh, the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Much of what John writes here, as is fitting for the end of a letter, is sort of repetition. Like we've heard him say these things. And maybe he hasn't said exactly what verse 4 says in the way that it says it. But he said those things, right? Um, He hasn't exactly said his commandments are not burdensome. But if you've followed with us or if you've read 1 John, like certainly that's true. Like he said that without saying it. And so a lot of this is reminders as he's wrapping up his writing to his little children, as he calls them. Um, He's reminding them that if you're born of God, you believe in Jesus because Jesus was born of God. That's kind of the logic that he uses. You believe anything born of God if you're born of God. And by this, we know that we're children of God. Guess what? By love and the love that we have. Right. We've talked about that. And so in many ways, much of what is written here is a reminder A reminder not of just experiential truths, but even the specific writings John has already given. If you read the Gospel of John, he emphasizes these things. If you read this letter of John, he's already emphasized them. And so he's emphasizing them again as he's ending here. And I don't have a whole lot more that I want to say about this, except for in verse 4 where he says, oh, sorry, then verse 3, and his commandments, God's commandments are not burdensome. Many of us have heard that phrase before. We may even be so familiar with it that when we're in a tough time, maybe you even think of it. Like you remind yourself of that. Um, I just wanted to highlight this verse for a moment that even though it's a reminder of John's among many reminders, it's one that I think many of us in this group, because I know you, would do well to remember. Um, Not because I have anything negative to say about you, but just it's a good reminder. Like when you feel overcome, when you feel anxious, when you feel like you're losing, right, in your spiritual battles and maybe even in your walk with God, just remind yourself that like the difficulties you're facing are real, but ultimately not burdensome, right? And I think it's helpful to understand what John maybe even is carrying in this idea of burdensome. It doesn't mean that they're without difficulty. I don't think that's the fair idea of burdensome. But it evokes this idea that even Jesus talked about, right? Like those that come to him that are weary and have heavy burdens or heavy laden, some translations would say. You can come to him and guess what you find? Rest. But at the same time, Jesus would talk about how it was difficult for the rich man to enter into the kingdom and how there was a broad and easy path, but that's not the path you should be going down, right? And so he's not to say that Christianity and believing in Jesus and being born of God isn't without its trials and difficulties, but ultimately it's not a burdensome path, right? It's the path that Jesus offers to carry burdens on, right? And that's what John wants us to remember. So I'm encouraging you guys to remember that too, that though there are real difficulties in being Christians and trying to follow what's real and even to know what's true sometimes, think of the alternative and you'll be reminded of what John's reminding us. It's really not burdensome. 
I do want to uh, look at verse 5. Verse 5 kind of, to me, I didn't know to inc- whether to include it in the first four verses or the next section. So it kind of ended up being the swing verse for me where I kind of included them both um, in my outline. But I do want to look at that verse for a moment, even though we didn't just read it. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? I read this as almost a rhetorical because of verse 4. And every, well, really all four of the verses, but particularly verse four. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And you should say, well, no one. No one overcomes the world except those who believe Jesus is the Son of God, right? In fact, verse four said that for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that our faith. Well, our faith in what? Verse one. If you believe that Jesus is the Christ and have been born of God, it's like kind of circular. Like he's saying a lot of the same things over and over again. And it kind of offers us this rhetorical to kind of sit on and think about that there are times where maybe your path feels burdensome as a Christian, right? And you have to remind yourself, well, really, the reality is that it's not burdensome. It's hard sometimes, but it's not something that I'm burdened by. God offers to carry those. Jesus wants to help us with that. And we're also reminded sometimes that like, hey, like even though I feel overcome, right, like the world's winning and I'm losing, the reminder is, well, no, that's not true at all. If you've put your faith in Jesus, you've overcome the world. Now, uh, for someone like John, who assuming he wrote this, which seems probable in my study, And assuming the timeline that I kind of think that smarter people than me have concluded that he's writing this, he might have felt that. He's probably been exiled onto some little tiny island in the Mediterranean. He may even feel like the world has overcome him, right? And so this is a good reminder not only for the little children he's writing to, but maybe even for himself That those who accept or believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God and have been born of him have actually overcome the world. It's similar to how faith isn't frictionless. It's not always easy, but it is not burdensome. We may not always feel like we've overcome, but the reality is that we have already overcome. All right, so that's all I wanted to say. Through the first five verses, let's move on to the next section here, which is going to be 6 through 12. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. These three agree. And if we receive the testimony of men... The testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God, that he has born concerning his son. Whoever believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. And whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. There's some really concrete things in this section that I don't think need a whole lot of explanation, particularly as I'm looking out at this group. 
among us probably don't need a lot of explanation because we believe these things, particularly at the end of this section, right? God gave us eternal life. I would hope everybody in this room, knowing all of you, you, you know that, you believe that. It's concrete in your life. You've, you've molded or shaped your life actually around believing that truth, right? The next thing that probably stands out is the life is in his son. The same, right? I've concretely known that. I've built my life around that. And whoever has the son has life. That's the connection. Whoever does not have the son does not have life. You've probably also shaped your worldview based around that, knowing the people in this room. But some of the things in the beginning of this section are a little like trickier for me to understand, particularly when it starts talking about the water, the blood, and the spirit, and then the greeing, and all that stuff. I don't know about you, but when I read that, I'm tempted, and not even like consciously, I just sort of automatically start to kind of zone out, because I'm like not really sure what's happening, and so I'm like, yeah, the last part though, <laughs> right? Um, I'll, I'll offer you some thoughts about this. I'm, I'm not pretending to understand it all, but I tried to my best to kind of sort through what's being said here. And I think there's some helpful things. The first statement in verse six is just trying to help us identify the Christ, Jesus, right? And the way that John wants to help us identify that and understand testimony is by offering us water and blood. I think there's a lot of different ways that you could fairly say water and blood associate with Jesus. And I'm not going to say they're all contextually the right way, but your mind might automatically start to make connections to times where you think of Jesus being associated with water and blood, right? Maybe like uh, his conversation with Nicodemus. You think about that in John chapter 3, and he has that inner course with Nicodemus about like being born again. He's talking about water, and he's like, well, how, how would I be born again? And Jesus is trying to explain to him deeper spiritual truth than just going back into the body of his mother. Or maybe you think about Jesus' own baptism, right? Like at the beginning of his ministry, he's baptized by John, and this voice comes out of heaven saying, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Maybe you think of that water, right? Or maybe you think about when he's on the cross and he's passed away and someone pierces his side. Guess what comes out? Water. But also what comes out? Blood, right? So maybe you think about that water and blood. Maybe you think about the blood he sheds on the cross. There's a lot of different, like, water and blood imagery that I think we can think of because it's so prominent in the the metaphors, the symbols, even the mission of Jesus involves those two things so heavily. And John is trying to tell us in verse 6 that those two things testify to Jesus Christ. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, and it's important that we have water and blood. Right. I think uh, there's some possibilities for this, most of which I just offered up, right? You think of the water and blood in John chapter 19. Maybe John is thinking about it's important that we see Jesus as having water and blood, like what flowed out of his side, right? And that'd be important because obviously it brings us to the cross. Maybe it's that. Maybe, uh, you know, you think water because he was physically born of his mother. You know, there's water in that birth. And he had blood, like, in his body, like he was real. He came by water and blood. Not just water, but water and blood. The thing that makes the most sense to me, 
um, is maybe kind of the bookends of Jesus. Like the way that the gospel presents Jesus, the bookends of his life are water and blood. Um, you have water in the baptism, right? I mean, you have water in the birth, you have water in the baptism. Those are kind of like the two big starters, right? You have blood particularly in birth as well. But then you also have water and blood at the end. And so while you may think specifically about one of those instances, maybe we think generally about his life is bookended by the fact that he was of water and blood. Physically and spiritually is true on both ends, right? Even think about... um, I mean, communion, Lord's Supper even invokes kind of these ideas of water and blood, right? Everything about Jesus speaks to these kind of two testimonies, if you will. And I think that's what John's trying to point us to. I don't know if he's pointing at any one of those like water and blood moments or if he's just saying, like, think about Jesus. He was of water and blood, not just water, but especially helpful is blood, Right? Again, that, that's not giving us a specific to link to. That's not some helpful insight into some nuance of the text. But think of, it was helpful for me to think about why is John pointing to this, and it's for testimony, right? It's, help us, it's to help us identify Jesus for who he was. But you know there's the third one that comes up right after this. It's the Spirit. And the Spirit is testifying to the fact that water and blood identify Jesus, Right, And the water and blood, they give testimony to Jesus. And the Spirit gives testimony to those giving testimony of Jesus. And so in that sense, he says all three agree. Right? And so when I look, about, look at this, I see water, blood, and the Spirit all testifying that Jesus was the Son of God. I think that's the point of this text. And whatever water and blood you may specifically think of, I think they all point to the fact that Jesus was born of God was of God, and he was the Christ or the Messiah. And that's what John's trying to remind us of. And there's no, like, testimony difference. There's no contrast or, or uh, I don't know, lie or a gray area in this. The spirit, the water, and the blood, they all agree. And if we receive the testimony of men, in verse 9, the testimony of God is greater. I thought about this for a while, and I was trying to think, okay, what is he trying to say? And I think it comes out pretty obvious. I think I'm just dense sometimes, and then when it finally dawned on me, I'm like, oh, yeah, that makes total sense. I was just – sometimes you think about things oddly, and then all of a sudden it just clicks for you. You're like, why didn't I think that first? But it finally clicked with me. I'm like, yeah, all the time I trust the word of men. Like all the time I'm accepting testimony or evidence from people. Like that's how my life works. I value like evidence. If you offer me a testimony or an evidence, I'm pretty quick to take it because I assume like good things about you. Like I generally assume you're not trying to lie to me, and if you have reason to believe it, then great. If I'm okay with that, then why would I not accept kind of as it's phrased here the threefold testimony of God? The water testifies, the blood testifies, and the spirit testifies. Why am are some of us so hesitant to accept the testimony of God, threefold even, 
yet we're so willing to accept testimony every day in our lives from the people around us. And I think that's what John's trying to say in verse 9. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God's greater. That should be obvious to us. Obviously, God's testimony is greater. It's offered three times over in these three that agree. And so he says, this is the testimony of God that he has born concerning his son. And then we get to the concrete things we all have shaped our lives around, right? Do you believe in the threefold testimony, the spirit, the water, the blood? That's a thought question. Do you actually believe that like the water and the blood and the spirit all bear witness or testify to Jesus? Have you overcome the world by faithfulness to Jesus? That's discussed in this text uh, that we just read here. Because whoever has the son has life, right? And we know that John equates life and light similarly. And he also contrasts those against darkness, but also of being of the world. So have you overcome the darkness or of the world by having life in the son and accepting the threefold testimony? Questions that John prompts us to consider. Let's move through this. Uh, verses 9 through 12 here. There's a couple other things that I want us to think about. Do you trust the testimony of men and yet fail to trust the testimony of God? And think about that specifically, not even just about Jesus, because I'd imagine as I look across this room, everybody in this room would say they trust the testimony of Jesus or the testimony to Jesus or but are there other parts that God has testified to something, parts of God's story, his narrative, his Bible, that you are hesitant to trust, but yet you're willing to kind of just trust the word of people? Um, there's some contentious points in the Bible, no doubt about it. Um, there are points that are more highly contentious, even in just scientific realms or historical realms or even moral realms, depending on who you're talking to. Right. Think about those points, kind of those those volatile points. Are you more willing to trust the testimony of God on those things than you are the people around you? John causes us to consider this because God's testimony is greater. Do you know what God calls those who don't believe his testimony? In the text, he actually talks about how if you don't believe the testimony that's offered, you're calling God a liar, right? He says that in verse, uh, what is that, 10? Yeah. Well, you know God doesn't lie. His testimony is greater, right? And so ultimately, what does that make us if we don't believe the testimony of God? We're the liars. We're the defiant ones, right? You may claim God is a liar, by implication of your disbelief, but he's not. You are. You're, you're going against the truth, the testimony to what is real. Right? So these are some thought questions I came up with when I went through this. It's just, do you trust the testimony or do you, would you rather trust testimony from the people around you? And um, have you considered what that might make you if you don't trust God's testimony? All right. Lastly, um, in verse 12 here, whoever has the son has life. I think part of what is known 
that John often talks about is kind of intrinsic to a Christian. He uses that kind of reasoning a lot, like love, for instance. Like, you know if you're born of God by the love that you have for your brother. Right? Like, that's kind of an intrinsic thing. Like, when you've been born of God, you have coming out of you love. Right? And we define that love in chapter 4 as like the love that Jesus had where he was the propitiation for others' sins. It's a very specific kind of love. Like, it's, it's intrinsic. Intrinsic. But here in this text, kind of what's intrinsic is life. Eternal life specifically. And I think the Bible talks a lot about um, these kinds of things that are within us as testimonies. Eternal life here in John chapter 5. Sacrificial love from chapter 4. Even the spirit bears witness that our spirit uh, or with our spirit that we are children of God. That's Romans 8. Like that's kind of an intrinsic thing, right? Um. And so what's offered here at the end of this section is really John is reminding us that who we are is being born of God itself as a testimony to life in Jesus. So you could almost add that there's kind of four things that agree. Right? There's water and blood and the spirit. But then if you've been born of God, like you are a testimony to what God has already testified to. Right. So I would insert that John is kind of offering a fourth testimony um, okay so let's let's move forward here in verses 16 through 17 uh or sorry not verses 16 17 13 through 15 i write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of god that you may know that you have eternal life and this is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will he hears us and if we know that he hears us and whatever we ask we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. All right, so in this, uh, there's some important things that I want to kind of highlight because I'm going to come back to them at the very end. Um, John wants believers to know that they have eternal life. We've talked about that. But not only that, um, that God is available to talk to. I think even Daniel used those words even when he was up here praying. He's like, God, we want to talk to you. Um, that's really what John is saying. And not only that we can like talk to him and he's like just kind of like there, it, it, that he actually listens. It reminds me of when Jesus would always say like you who have ears to hear, let him hear. Right? Like he wasn't just saying like in one ear out the other. He's like really contemplate and listen to what I'm telling you. I get the impression that John is saying God does that. He like really contemplates and listens to the things that are said to him. Right. Because what's offered in this section here uh, is we have confidence because we can ask and he hears us, which implies that he answers. Right. We know that we have the request that we have asked of him. One important caveat to offer in this that I often overlook. And so maybe some of you are the same way is that he says in this text we ask anything according to his will right and now you and i may like wrestle with what exactly that means from time to time like some things are really knowable right like if i pray god help me teach people about jesus then that's obviously according to his will right but some things are a little less knowable like hey god like which job should i take well okay like that's a little more hard to discern sometimes because 
if I have my heart set on the right things and I want to teach people about Jesus and I want to be a light in my community and I have that mindset and I'm looking at two job offers and I say, well, I could really probably do both at either one. Then it's like, well, maybe both are according to his will. You know, like you get into some areas where it's maybe tougher to know and you talk to God and, and you say, well, I don't know what is your will, right? We have, we say things like that. Like, I'm not sure which is your will. But the point is that we're aiming for that, right? Like when I talk to God, maybe sometimes my prayers need to be like, show me your will, right? Like if I pray according to your will, I know that you hear me. So I want to know like in this moment right now, what, what is the thing that you will for me, right? But that's an important informer on our prayers because it leads us on a totally different path than say like, what is my will, right? Like my will says like, hey God, like give me the Corvette. We're like, hey, God, make this week easy, right? Well, that's not necessarily his will, but, like, that's what my will is. Like, no tests this week. That would be great, God, thanks, right? Or, like, make my boss like me. That would be great, right? But that's not necessarily God's will. And I'm not trying to say, like, God's trying to make your life miserable. My point is, what is the aim of our prayers? Is it aligning our will with God's or is it doing the other way? trying to get God's will to be my will, right? And John says, hey, if you pray where you want your will to be like God's, God listens to that, and you know you have that request. That's important because we're going to come back to it. So, but a couple thought questions. Do you ask God for things? That's not personally my struggle. I ask God for lots of things. Um, but the next part may be more my struggle. Do you ask according to his will? Do you trust that he's listening? I also struggle with that sometimes. If I really know and understand that he really is listening, do you trust that he answers? Think about those things because John saying you should know that. You should know. You should have confidence that he does. 16, uh, verse 16 and 17 here. Let's read these together. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. If you were going to ask me what's the hardest part to understand specifically in all of 1 John, these are probably the two verses that I'd be like, those. Those are probably the hardest. But there are some things that I think are helpful in thinking about this. In fact, this happens every so often. It's not all that often where I go into something with like no idea. I'm totally open to whatever I discover. And like I actually discover something that's really helpful. And I feel like maybe this was for me. Not trying to overhype it, but I was like, wow, I think I have understood this better now than ever before. Which is not to say I understand it all. But I feel like I at least move forward in a productive way with this text. Think about a couple of the things he's saying. First of all, this is in the context of prayer still, right? 16. If you observe a, a, your brother sinning, right? Let's hold on to this sin not leading to death part for a moment. Let's just set that aside. But if you observe him sinning, right? What does he say to do? Ask. And what happens? God will give him life. So we're still talking about praying. Like asking God, right? And remember, what you do when you do that is you ask according to the will of God. Well, certainly, if someone's sinning and you're praying for that person who's apparently a brother, 
and you're a believer yourself because you're praying and you're observing all this stuff, you're probably praying within God's will that that person would stop sinning and be forgiven. Like obviously those are things God wills for them, right? He wants them to obey. He wants them to stop their sinning. He wants them to ask for forgiveness, all those things. Those are going to be things you pray for in a situation like that, right? And so guess what? God hears and he answers. He gives them life. And so the question is not so much like what's happening, right? We get kind of that. The question then becomes, well, what is this life business? Life like leading to death? Like what is all this conversation about? Because that's what muddies it up. We get when we see someone sinning, pray for them and God will actually do things for them, right? What we're actually seeing in this text, I think is really empowering. And it's that like, there is kind of a special, and I, I don't know how to phrase this. Um, I, I'm going to say special powers. I hope you know what I mean by that. But there seems to be like a special kind of power that God gives to a believer who prays on the behalf of another believer who's like doing dumb things. Um, God like hears that prayer and like even seems to like honor it and like give them life, which kind of seems contrary to maybe some of the teachings of the Bible in one sense, because it's like, well, like if someone sins, like, shouldn't they reap what they sow, right? Or shouldn't they have to repent and come to God? And I don't think this undermines any of that, but I think what God sees when he sees someone sinning, but then there's a bunch of people around them that see that going on and are praying for that person. Like God's going to do some special things in that situation that might not have occurred if no one was praying for them. And if you're a believer, you got to believe that that's how prayer works. God answers those prayers in ways that you assume wouldn't have been answered because nobody was asking, right? And so I hope we see that. I hope we see that God is empowering those of us who observe sinful behavior to actually help. I think that's a really empowering thing for me personally. Um, it's a really encouraging thing that God will actually like give life to people that I feel like are doing dumb stuff, sinful stuff. And even if I'm not directly involved with them, like I'm influencing that situation through my prayers, right? But let's talk about this like sin leading to death thing. I really don't know what to think about this. I wrestled with it a lot. And the possibilities that I came up with, just my mind ran to is like, well, maybe he's talking about spiritual death. You know, not like literal, like they're going to die, but maybe he's just saying like, but then I thought, well, doesn't all sin lead to death? Like, isn't that how it works? <laughs> like, isn't that the definition of sin? It's like unrighteousness and God separates himself from that. And so if God is life and we're separated, that's death, right? So I was like, well, maybe that's not it. And I thought of like that passage, like in some of the gospels, like Mark 3, it's mentioned in Matthew as well, where Jesus talks about like, blaspheming against the Holy Spirit and like how that's unforgivable or unpardonable. It's like, well, maybe and I was like, that seems like a stretch. And then I started thinking about, well, maybe this is like Hebrews 10 where the person just won't repent. Like a sin leading to death is the sin that someone won't repent of. I thought, well, maybe that's true. You know, that's what they talk about in Hebrews 10 when you trample under the foot, the sacrifice of Jesus, right? You just kind of, you know about it, but you just kind of whatever it, um, Perhaps it is physical death, maybe even by God's judgment, like Ananias and Sapphira, like they're going down a sinful way that like God is going to have to judge them harsh. I mean, I don't know how you'd know that. So again, I was kind of like, that isn't, 
Like, that might be true, but how would I know it's leading to that? You know, like, because they say, you know it's leading them there is kind of the context here. And then I also thought, like, you know, that whole bit in 1 Corinthians 11 where some have fallen asleep and some are sick when he's talking about the Lord's Supper. Maybe I thought it's more subtle. Maybe, like, you just see the effects of, like, bad things and you assume it's sinful behavior. And I thought, I don't know. So I, I was just kind of all over the place. I was like, I don't know how to think about this. And then I thought, well, does John use this word death anywhere else in this letter? And it only comes up in two verses that are back-to-back in chapter 3. And so I went there. If you want to turn there in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, I found this really helpful. Because this told me what John kind of thinks of or the way he talks about death. So John chapter 3, verse 14 says this. We know that we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. This is the only place outside of this really weird place in John 5 where he says this same word death. Um, I looked it up just to make sure it's the exact same word. Um, And so I started thinking about this, and maybe the sin leading to death, because of the way John talks about love, is whatever sinful behavior that is causing a brother to give up on their love for their other brothers. Um, John equates love so intimately with faith and with belief and even proof that you're born of God. That it would make sense that if a brother is committing a sin leading to death, maybe they're giving up on their love for God and for other brothers. I don't know how specifically that might play out. Like I don't, I can't say like, well, this is the one thing you could do to lead you there. But like, if you see a brother sinning and it's leading them away from love of God and the love of their brethren, then I think it'd be fair to say that John would talk about that sin as a sin leading to death. Because of First John chapter three, right? They they are passing back into death because they're giving up the love that they have. Now think about the converse of this: if a brother sins and yet still maintains a love for God and his brothers, that person oftentimes will correct it, right? Like they'll repent. They'll like if they find out you're praying for them, they're going to respond favorably to that. If you try to exhort them, encourage them, they'll probably, like, maybe they're taken aback, but because they love God and they love you, like, it will work itself out. But if you see someone sinning in such a way and, like, moving towards not loving brothers and sisters and not loving God, then that's a sin that's taken them into death, right? I don't know if that's helpful for you guys, but when I read that, it just kind of clicked for me. Like, John thinks about death as moving away from love. And so maybe that's what's being discussed here in chapter 5 is when you see a brother sinning, but it's not leading them towards death. Like, you know it's like correctable. Like, pray for them and God's going to grant them forgiveness in life. But when you see that like they're moving away from God and the love of Christians and brothers and sisters, what God says in that moment is like, there's not, there's not a prayer that can like help that, right? Like what he says, there is sin that leads to death. I don't say that one should pray for that. There's two ways you can read it. Either like never hope for that. I don't know what person would ever pray. I hope this person's sinning. But like 
just don't hope for that. Like hope it's always the sin not leading to death. Or maybe he's saying like you, you can't pray for that person because the, like there's nothing you can do. Almost like Hebrews 10, right? Um, again, I don't offer a conclusive answer on that, but it was really helpful for me to consider how John talks about death to maybe consider what he might mean in this. Overall, though, look at verse 17. All wrongdoing is sin. The bottom line is, if I pursue something contrary to God's will for me, that's sin. And that's what defines wrongdoing. And I need to realize that. So thought question that I have for you guys and for myself is, am I sinning? Am I sinning? That's a big question. You just got to chew on it and be honest about it. Another question is, when I observe sin, do I pray for that person? And it's a little tricky because depending on your interpretation of verse 16, you're like, well, should I or shouldn't I pray for them? Right? But God has given us the ability to pray for people that sin and he's and through John has tried to give us the wisdom to know when to. And so maybe you need to be praying to God, God, give me the wisdom to know when I should be praying for people that are sinning. And God, give me the wisdom to identify sins that are not leading to death and help those people. And give me wisdom to know when a sin is leading to death. Those are tough things. I don't pretend to understand them all and I'm not trying to smooth it over but those are real prayers that we can have let's let's look at this last section as we're wrapping up Uh, verses 18 through 21 we know that everyone who's been born of God does not keep on sinning but he who is born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one and we know that the son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true. In his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourself from idols. Every time I read John, I kind of forget that last verse exists. And every time I read John, I'm like, weird ending. Like, I think that is the only time he mentions the word idols. Um, but really, everything John's presented in this letter is about idolatry. And knowing who the real God is, right? And this whole letter has been about presenting Jesus, the one testified by water and blood and the spirit. And in chapter one, who he held and touched and we knew and we like felt like that's God. And everything else he's talked about, the darkness, hating your brother, right? The spirits that are false that you need to test and sort through. Like all that stuff, that's just, that's idolatry. Like all of it's just false idols, right? But we can know the Son. We can be born of God. And one other reality that we need to understand here is in verse 18 or verse 19. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. That's a really like pessimistic or it can be a very pessimistic place to land. But I don't think John is implying a pessimistic worldview as much as he's stating a fact. Uh, the world lies in the power of the evil one. It's just the bottom line, right? We say that all the time. It's the bottom line. 
but we, right, have overcome the world. So actually, there's not a pessimistic kind of persona that a Christian should have. We've overcome the world. Who cares if it lies in the power of the evil one? I'm, I'm over it, so to speak, right? Uh, is Satan clinging to you, or are you clinging to Jesus? The word uh, used in this text in verse 18 where it says God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. I don't know what every translation says. I didn't look at it. But that word for touch is actually the same word that Jesus used when Mary was clinging to him. And he was like, get off of me. Remember when he says that? Um, Don't cling to me, Mary. Um, So it's not just like a passing touch. It's more like you touch you cling to so the idea is god protects and you know what happens that means satan cannot cling to you cannot touch you right and so the question is is satan clinging to you are you clinging to him or are you clinging to jesus are you worshiping uh, an idol literally though i think that's less prevalent in the 21st century United States. Literally, most of us don't have little idols. Though I've known friends that have had family members that do that. And I know some of us have even grown up around people like that. But John talks a lot about idols. He talks a lot about false gods. Are you an idolater? Do you worship something other than Jesus? Do you worship or follow false ideas even about Jesus? Those are all idolatrous things. Don't be an idolater. So that's it for John chapter 5. I hope that was helpful going through the book of First John. Um, a couple things about just this kind of lesson or Bible study or whatever, i sure beyond a shadow of a doubt it's clear that I don't understand it all. There's two ways you can take that. You could be totally encouraged and be like, wow, like it's just like me. Like none of us understand it. Great, right? Or you can say like wow he knows nothing why should i listen to him and i hope that's not i hope you kind of don't take either one of those like wow let's revel in the fact that none of us can understand the bible really what i want is for us to just see like it is understandable it is reasonable in the truest sense and that it benefits us to be honest about that and to be honest about parts that are challenging be honest about parts that are difficult to even grasp what's being said But to lean on the things that are concrete. I can talk to God and pray for his will and he hears me. James tells me I can ask for wisdom and God grants it. I can know I can pray for people that are sinning and God can discern where that sin's leading. And I can just say, hey, God, like I see sin. I'm going to pray for it. Like do what's right with this. But ultimately, the most concrete thing is I want to help us for myself and for you guys instill a faith and appreciation for Jesus and all the testimony that points us to him. So I hope none of us give that up. If there's anyone here today that needs prayers, help, whatever, just let someone know because this is your time for us as a group to help you. Please come while we're singing this song.